Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. Father, we just want to thank you for your word today. We ask that you will bless it. Let it speak deep into our hearts. Let it transform our lives. Let it point us in the right direction, Heavenly Father. We ask you, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. Well, we are on our journey. Um, this is part of that, the series, The Journey into God's Promises. And we are on that journey. Um, and today, uh, we want to and speak about a battle, uh, the battle of Amalek. It's actually the first battle that the children of Israel faced as soon as they came out of Egypt. Um, and I think the battles they fought are, are great opportunities to learn life lessons uh, that will serve us in good stead as we journey into God's promises, stand on God's promises. You see, the, the scene or the, 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 the battle was a consequence of the promise that God made to the children of Israel. In Exodus, the third chapter and the 17th verse, he says, I have promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites now live. Now, he says, I'm, I'm coming to take you out of Egypt to take you into a promised land. But there is, of course, or there are obstacles on the way. And one of those obstacles is that there are tribes along the way uh, that, that do not want you to enter the, the promised land. Um, Canaanites, Hittites, in least all of them, a lot more than those. Now, for the children of Israel to enter the promised land, they had to, in a lot of instances, fight through uh, to possess God's promise to them. They had to fight hostile tribes who were bent on making sure that they did not possess what God had promised them. Now, how does that affect us? 21st century Christian in London or in any of the other cities in the United Kingdom or any nation in the world? Well, it does affect us because don't forget it is types and shadows. We're learning lessons from them as they possessed God's promise to them, the land flowing with milk and honey, large and spacious. We're learning lessons as we possess God's promises to us, the more than 5,000 promises that he has written in the Bible that are your portion and my portion. In the same way that they have to fight hostile tribes to possess the land, we also have to fight to possess God's promises. There's an organized hierarchy of hostile tribes that are trying to do the same thing, stop you and I from entering or possessing and, and enjoying the full benefits of God's promises for us. And Paul helps us understand that in Ephesians, the sixth chapter and the 12th verse. It says, you know, uh, the, the more traditional translations, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Uh, the New Living Translation says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And I like the Passion Translation, as you, as you know. It says, Your hand-to-hand -hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. For they are a powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. So what's the summation? We are fighting. We are fighting. The Bible describes it in the graphic way of the Passion Translation. We are in hand-to-hand -hand combat against an organized hierarchy of evil and, weakness, and, and wickedness. These are the tribes that are trying to stop us from entering God's promises. And we learn some valuable lessons. We get some, we get some insight into how we fight to victory from the fights that the children of Israel engaged in as they journeyed towards God's promise to them, the promised land. And so I want to take us to Exodus, the 17th chapter, as we uh, learn some life lessons from this battle to make sure that you are prepared and you overcome against this organized hierarchy of wickedness that the Bible says is arrayed against us to stop us from entering the fullness of what God has planned for us. Exodus 17 <clears throat> verses 8 to 13. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow, I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. What are the lessons that we can learn from this? Lesson number one. You are enlisted into the army. You are part of the battle, whether you like it or not. You can choose to acknowledge this as a truth and prepare yourself for the battles. Or you can pretend that it doesn't exist. Pretend that it won't affect you. You can live in what I call really a fool's paradise and, as, and, and assume that there isn't a wicked, devious enemy that is controlling wicked and devious soldiers of his tribes that are determined to stop you and I from entering God's promises. You don't have a choice. The children of Israel didn't have a choice as to whether they fought or not. The Bible just said 
in, in verse 8 of Exodus 17, while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. No warning. It wasn't because they had done anything wrong. They were just on their way to what God had promised them. And suddenly, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Our enemy doesn't necessarily give us warnings. Uh, he doesn't attack us because of what we did to him. No. The very fact that you're a child of God, the very fact that you're a Christian, the very fact that God has made these promises to you, that alone puts you into the battle. For that reason alone, he is determined to come against you, to stop you from entering what God has promised to you. So whether we like it or not, lesson number one, we are part of this battle. Lesson number two, the battle tells us that there is a two-pronged approach that brings victory. It tells us that there is the spiritual and the natural. One or the other cannot bring victory. Together, they bring victory. It tells us that victory was won because of what happened on the hill, the spiritual, and because of what happened in the valley, in a sense, the natural. For the story speaks for itself. Moses goes up to the hill. Aaron and her go with him. And what he's doing on the hill, lifting up his hands, uh, the symbol of prayer, lifting up his hands, works with what Joshua is doing in the valley, fighting in the natural. And that is what brings victory. So we must understand that it's the same in life. It is impossible to get victory simply from what we do here on earth. We must understand that it is the spiritual first. It is victory in the spiritual that causes victory here on earth. It is what we do in the spiritual. The spiritual is really where it happens. All the protagonists are primarily spiritual. Uh, God is a spirit. Uh, his angels are, are, of course, spirits. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a spirit. Jesus himself is seated in heavenly places. Those who oppose us are spirits. Uh, Satan is a spirit. The demons that work for him are spirits. Even you and I are first spirits before we have the soul that is put in a body. That should tell anybody that the primary place where it is sorted out is firstly in the spiritual. But then we have to come down from the spiritual into the natural. It's the combination of the spiritual and the natural that brings victory. So my brother and my sister, when you're faced with anything here in the natural, the first place to look is the spiritual. Because what is going on there determines what is happening here. It is always a two-pronged approach. The people who live here only who are earth-bound, earth-based, earth-driven. Paul calls them carnal Christians when they are Christians. Their, their life is driven by their senses. They are controlled by their senses. They are controlled by what is natural. But the people who understand that they are, that they are moved by the impulses of the Spirit and that they sort things out first spiritually to get results here naturally, Paul calls them mature Christians. So lesson number two, it's a two-pronged approach. Lesson number three, 
Prayer is the key to victory. Prayer is the key to victory. As long as Moses held up his held up the staff, the Bible says, Exodus 17, verse 11, in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. I can imagine this was a lesson for Aaron and her in the power of prevailing prayer. Because if they didn't understand, by the time this battle was over, they understood that what the old man was doing on the hill as he lifted up his hands was the reason that there was victory in the valley. Because as they watched it, this, it suddenly must have clicked in their minds because when the old man lifted his hands and the lifting of the hands is, gra is a graphic picture of prayer, of, 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 of intercession. As the old man lifted his hands, they noticed that it was like Joshua and the army of Israel were empowered by what the old man was doing. And they started to gain ground, take territory, rout the enemy. But then the, as the old man's hands got tired and his hands came down, they noticed that Joshua and the army of Israel in the valley, they had a vantage view. They noticed that Joshua and the army of Israel started to lose ground. The old man would force his hands up because he understood that what I am doing here is what is going to bring victory in the natural. And as he forced his hands up, going against the tiredness that was forcing his hands down, they noticed that Israel started to gain ground. And as they watched this thing seesaw, it suddenly dawned on them. They got clarity and the kind of clarity that I need you and I to get that victory is won in the place of prayer. And it is prevailing prayer, travailing prayer. We, we win that because we lift up our hands. You know, the Bible says um, concerning us and prayer in James, the fifth chapter. Um, and this is one of the scriptures that we all love. It says the latter part of, of verse 16 says the earnest prayer. One translation says the effectual prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So our prayer always produces wonderful results. One, the older translations say avails much. And then it goes on to give us what I think is one of the most encouraging examples in the Bible. It says Elijah was as human as we are. The same issues as human as we are. One translation says with the frailties that we have. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half Yes, Elijah, human like you and I, by prayer, shut up the heavens. It tells you what you and I can do in prayer. And when he prayed again, this same Elijah, he opened up the heavens. The sky sent down rain and earth to begin to yield its crops. Our victory is in the place of prayer. You know, sh show me a Christian who is victorious. I can tell you without knowing a few things about their prayer lives. We don't fight with carnal weapons. The weapons of our warfare, the Bible would say, are not carnal. They are not, they are not natural weapons. No, our weapons are spiritual. They are divine. They are, they are spiritual weapons that are unleashed in the place of prayer. Amen. So prayer, lesson number three, prayer is the key. We learn that from them. Lesson number four, there is a price to pay to stand at the top of the hill. 
Yeah, the top of the hill is symbolic of the place of prayer, the place of intercession. And there is a price to pay to, to get to the top of the hill. It, it, does, it just doesn't happen because we wish it. There is a cost, my brother and my sister, to get to the top of the hill. Listen to, listen to Moses, the wise old man, when he's told about that, that the army has attacked. And I hope this will be a default mode that the enemy has come against you in some way or another. The enemy has attacked you, attacked your family. Our go-to place should be firstly the place of prayer. Something is not going right. Firstly, the place of, place of prayer. When he hears, the old man says in the latter part of verse 9, Tomorrow I will go and stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, he gave Joshua instructions to do certain things in the natural, but he knew what you're going to do in the natural simply cannot work. It can't yield results. The enemy will have you for dinner. You will be shish kebab. But on, unless I do what I should do at the top of the hill. And so he, the Bible says in verse 10, so Joshua did what Moses commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. You know, when I read that scripture, I think to myself, this is an old man. And he's climbing to the top of the hill. It must have taken some effort, some sacrifice, some commitment, some dedication. And these are all words that must define our prayer life. It doesn't come on a platter. No, it comes because you woke up at night, because you woke up early in the morning, because you committed yourself to prayer, because you were there, persistent, prevailing, travailing, praying through because you stood your ground in the place of prayer. It comes because you have faith in God that your prayers are not in vain. As he climbed the mountain, as he climbed the hill, that old man, he wasn't climbing thinking this is an exercise in futility. He was thinking, I need to get to a vantage position where I can now speak to God and this thing is going to change. We need to find ourselves in that vantage position. And it's instructive that in a physical sense, that was really a vantage position. From that place of prayer, he was looking down on the battle that was taking place. In the place of prayer, you are elevated to the place that you are supposed to be in, seated with Christ in heavenly places. And from there, seated with Christ, you can look down on the battles of life from a vantage position. You have a bed's eye view. You have God's view of what is happening. And so the old man pays the price. We have to pay the price. I, I don't say to anyone, this kind of prayer that brings results is easy. Absolutely not. It takes some discipline before it becomes a delight. We have to commit ourselves to it. You know, we have to rearrange and reorder our lives around it. We go to bed a bit earlier because we want to add an extra hour to be in that vantage position on the hill so that we can affect what is happening in the valleys of our lives. Amen. Lesson number five. We have a responsibility to pray for and to pray with. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have a responsibility to pray for others. That glorious ministry of intercession. An immature church is primarily concerned with themselves. 
each person for himself. My blessing, uh, my breakthrough, uh, my own thing. And sometimes they might extend it to their family. But a mature church understands that there is a glory that comes from intercession, that comes from the sacrifice for others in the place of prayer, a glory that touches God's heart and really makes God address the intercessor's own personal things. It is not to say that we don't pray for ourselves, but it's to say that even in the model of prayer that we are given, it is one line really that addresses our day-to-day -day needs and a whole and a complete prayer that really focuses on other things. We are to pray for ourselves, but, but believe me, it is more glorious when we enter that place of intercession. And why do I call it the glory of intercession? Because it is, the, it is a ministry that copies the ministry that Jesus is performing for us in heaven. In heaven, Jesus performs the ministry of a high priest and the ministry of intercession. And so when we intercede here, when we stand in the gap for others, stand in the gap for those around us, for our friends, pray for those we know, pray for our leaders, pray for the nation, pray for the church. We are joining with Jesus in this glorious ministry of intercession. And you know, that's what God would have us do. Um, become intercessors. That was what commended Abraham to God, his heart for others. And you read the story of Abraham and you see how Abraham and Moses became so close to God because they have God's heart. And what is God's heart? God's heart is a heart for others. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die for you and I. The, the, the ultimate expression of intercession. And so I want to encourage us, let's not get into that selfish expression of some adulterated type of Christianity where all we are concerned about is ourselves. Let's have a burden to pray for others. But it's not, not just praying for others because that's what Aaron and Hur did. You know, they went there to assist Moses in intercession and they were there praying with Moses for what was happening in the valley. But it's also praying with others that, that is the blessing. You see, if you read that story, you find that verses 12 to 13, Moses' arms soon became tired. He could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. They, then they stood on each side of Moses holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. The connection is so clear. Because his arms held steady, incidentally, until sunset. This old man was interceding for hours. Please let that challenge us. That a two-minute prayer is great as part of a total package of prayer. But prevailing prayer is that I will pray and pray until I see what God has promised me come to pass. The old man lifted his hands for hours, eventually until sunset. And naturally he got tired. And you know what? We do get tired. That's why the, that's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's why I feel personally privileged as to the people who are interceding for me especially when I go through periods where 
I am tired and I am out of sorts. And believe me, I go through those periods. I'm grateful for my wife. You know, like our son said once, uh, um, JJ, just hearing her in the early hours of the morning praying is reassuring that somebody is standing in the gap. I would, I would, I would hope that she would say the same about me as I stand in the gap for her. Let's intercede. Let, let's intercede for each other and with each other. You see, with each other also means that we don't forsake the gathering of corporate prayer. There's just something about corporate intercession, which is why I can't wait. I thank God for all that's happening online. It's great. But you know what? Nothing, nothing can replace me looking across and seeing Doc Travelli. It does something to me. Or I look across and I see Derele on the line, line flat on her face on the floor and she's travailing. It does something. It kind of em empowers me, charges me up. That's the beauty of praying together. Aaron and her understood it. They understood that this old man has limitations. And he did have limitations because of his age. We all have limitations. Some days I wake up and it's just one of those days. My prayer life just kind of falls apart. You know, I kind of try, but I know that I'm struggling. And it is wonderful to know that there's somebody who is praying for me and there's somebody who can call and pray with me. And whenever the Spirit prompts you to pray for someone, have the boldness to do so because you don't, you never know whether that your prayer is what that person needed exactly. That's why the Spirit was prompting you to pray for him. And the sixth lesson is that prayer must always be accompanied at some point by action. Prayer without action will not bring victory. Exodus 17 verse 9, Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. He said, he, he put in the two together. He says, you choose some men, go out, fight the army of Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill and hold the staff of God in my hand. It is spiritual irresponsibility to imagine that all you need to do is sit in a place of prayer. God is a God of action. He told Moses, go forward towards the Red Sea. Yes, it starts in prayer. Yes, it must be sorted out in prayer. But it must end in action. There must be action that accompanies the prayer. And so he says to Joshua, choose some men, go out and fight. And, you know, when we, when we hear choose some men, we can think he just gathered so anybody he found walking around. Hey, you, join the army. Hey, you, join the army. No, no, no. Choose some men meant choose the men that are qualified. And, you know, we must be qualified by what we do so that God's grace can come upon what we have put before him in terms of our diligence to bring his plans and purposes to pass. We have to be qualified. There is no need praying for a job that you are unqualified for. You will be an embarrassment to the kingdom in the job. God is not going to allow you to embarrass us. Go and sit down and get the skills, be qualified, do the work, and then God can put grace upon that effort of yours. Because there is effort involved. There is the uh, uh, commitment, diligence, work, hard work involved. So don't just imagine that God is going to take the wealth of the wicked for the righteous. So God takes the wealth of a hard-working, very, very hard-working wicked man and gives it to a lazy Christian. It cannot happen. God does not work like that. Because when Moses commanded him to choose men, Moses meant choose men 
who are qualified. One day I would love to preach about Daniel and the three Hebrew boys because those are people who qualified themselves and the system had to push them up because their qualification commended them. They were better than those who tried to oppress them. That's a lesson for this season. That these things that we pray for are not going to happen because we're angry. Thank God for anger. For the, if we're angry, they're not going to happen because we're hurt. We have empathized and appreciate that, that we're hurt. They're going to happen because we take action. And because we, qualify, we, are, we get the qualifications, we are diligent in the work, we apply ourselves. We make it impossible for anybody to overlook us. That's exactly what happened to Daniel. When the king was looking for people, the king was looking for the best, and it did not matter that these people were not Babylonians. What mattered was that they can solve my problem. When a person gets problems, they look for who can be the solution. At that point in time, so who can be the solution? Believe me, it does not matter the color of your skin or what ethnic group. The problem is a big problem, and you are the one who can solve it. At that point in time, you will find yourself ushered into a position that you can now make a difference in because you were diligent, you were committed, you were hardworking, you were qualified. And, and that is the way that the prayers and the action can bring results. Lesson number seven. Last lesson as we come to an end. Victory in these battles come with the sword. Exodus 17 verse 13. And this is the Amplified Classic. And Joshua mowed down and disabled Amalek and his people with the sword. There is no other offensive weapon we have. Please, if you forget everything I've said, just understand this. No other offensive weapon. We do not win this battle in any other way but with a sword. When Paul, when Paul explains the the, the weapons of, of battle, he, there are six defensive weapons, one offensive weapon. The only offensive weapon is the, what he calls the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6 verse 17. And just so that there's no confusion, he goes on to say, which is the word of God? What was he saying? The way you fight the enemy is by the sword. Every other thing is to protect you, to make sure you can stand. But the way you take ground and take territory, the way you get victories is by the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The church is weak. The church is not as strong. The church is not advancing like it should. Christians are not taking territory like they should because they are not good swords, swordsmen they are, or women. We are not skilled to use that offensive weapon of the sword. We must become skilled in the, in the use of that weapon. We must study, we must read, we must meditate on the, on the word of God. We must confess the word of God. It is, our, it is our primary responsibility if we are going to win the battles of life. Without that, we, the best we can do is to maintain territory and receive a battering from the enemy. But I'm sure you know they say the, the best form of defense is attack, is an attack. So if we're staying in the same place, we're battered. But if we have the sword and we're skilled with the sword, we can go against the enemy. And the sword is the word of God. As Joshua says, as, as God says to Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 8, 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then, for then, for then, you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. There is no alternative. You are reading, studying, meditating on the word of God. And then you are confessing and declaring the word of God. And critically and crucially, you are committed to obeying the word of God. That is the only offensive weapon we have. Victory comes with the sword. Amen and amen and amen. I pray that we have learned some life lessons from this battle. There are many more, many more battles and we, we probably will come across a few and pick up some more life lessons that will help us in the battles of life as we battle to enter every promise, uh, to possess every promise that God has made for us. I want to end by making a prophetic declaration. I take it from the 14th to the 16th verse. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said they have raised their feast against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. What is the prophetic word? I want to ask you to bring before God now uh, a situation where you know the enemy is behind it. You know that this is the work of evil. It's the work of darkness. It's the enemy trying to stop you from entering God's promise. I, I just give you one minute to bring that situation before God. And then I'm going to make a prophetic declaration. And I believe with every fiber of my being that God will honor his word. Father, we just thank you and we bless you. Go on one minute, bring that situation before God. We bless you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord. 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 And so, Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for honoring this prophetic declaration over your son or your daughter. And Father, today, O oh God, the 7th of June, 2020, I declare, Heavenly Father, that the memory of that particular attack, obstruction, hindrance, and the spirits behind it will be erased from your son's life or your daughter's life Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I call on you, Yahweh Nisi, Jehovah Nisi, as I declare that you are her banner, you are his banner, Heavenly Father. Father, by their action against your child, they raise their fist against your, your throne. So, Father, I ask that you will come and fight for your child, Father, in this matter, in the name of Jesus. I declare prophetically, that on the back of the victory at Amalek, victory is yours in that situation. I declare that you will testify to the glory of God in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Amen. Go on. Celebrate God for that victory. You will testify 
in the name of Jesus. I declare to you, you will testify in the name of Jesus Christ. And as I end, I just want to say to you that God is not bound to fight for anyone who is not his child. He is not bound. He has not said he will anywhere in the Bible. He has, however, bound himself to fight for his children. And so if there's anyone there who can't say categorically, God is my father, and how do I know I can say that categorically? Because I have accepted Jesus into my life. Well, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to settle that matter so that God can fight for you in the battles of life. And so if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, why don't you just say the simple prayer that welcomes him into your heart? And that's it. Say after me, Heavenly Father, today I accept your Son, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Savior. I commit myself to living a life that will please you. I accept that I have hitherto not done that. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift your Son is. I receive him into my life. And by this action, I know I am now a child of yours. I am born again into your family in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, welcome into God's family.